0: Pastor Wolfmuther, Worldwide Bible Class, "The Life of Jacob According to Martin Luther," live from Concordia Theological Seminary. Let's share the screen and take a look. Uh, last week we got to um, this portion where um, Rebecca is sending Isaac away. You'll remember that that Isaac is angry here, and sorry, uh, Esau is angry. And he's he wants to kill his brother, and he's gonna and he knows that he's not only will he kill his brother, but when he does that he's also gonna kill his dad, because Isaac will die from mourning, and he brags about it and everyone knows about it, and so Rebecca finds out and she's gonna send him away, uh, and so she says, uh, let's go for a few days. Those few days end up being years and years and years, but. Um, but who knows if Rebecca knows that until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him, then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereaved of both of you in one day? And here we are in the text where we're headed. So this is, uh, Genesis 40, 27 versus 46. Sorry. This is all on one screen today, by the way. So you guys got to be a little patient with me. So the Rebecca, so Rebecca said to Isaac, I'm weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife of the daughters of Heth, like these who are daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? So Rebecca goes now to Isaac and is saying, um, look, we got to get, we got to get jacob out of here it's no good for him to be here and for him to get if he's got to get married now because he has the blessing it's no good for him to 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 get wives like esau's wives who are driving me crazy so we got to send him away and so in this way rebecca convinces isaac to send jacob away to haran okay so here we go and we'll just pick it up with luther and i think the plan today I know we're running a little bit late already, but we'll probably just go for half an hour or so and take a look at what how Luther's dealing with this text. And then we'll um and, and then we'll and then we'll stop and have some questions. So that's my plan. Observe once more. Oh, and can I, by the way, just to highlight this thing again, is how much of a how much of a hero Rebecca is. Oh, can you guys see my beard too? I should also make note of this. I shaved like 20 minutes ago, but it's something that happens on Fort Wayne campuses. Beards just grow. I just noticed. I'm just kidding. Ever all the pastors around. It's like a thing to be a pastor at Fort Wayne Seminary. You got to have a to uh, to notice how Luther understands the story. The hero of the story is Rebecca. I mean, she's the one who's who's pulling the who's calling the shots. She's the one who's making things happen. In a good way, I mean, in a godly way. So we see in Rebecca the example of a godly matriarch, along with the patriarch Isaac, a godly mother and Christian woman. Okay, so here she goes. Observe once more the prudence and shrewdness of the godly woman who does not tell the father why she is sending her son away, namely that... Esau wants to murder him. She does not point out how great the misfortune and disturbance of the house is, namely that the brother wants to kill brother. But with godly shrewdness, she conceals this tragedy from her husband. From this one should derive moral instruction, surely very fine and beautiful, in order that we may learn to be peaceable and to be frank, candid, and skillful in interpreting extenuating, covering and correcting even what has been wrongly said and done by others to put the best construction on things, not to aggravate, to put the best construction, not to, uh, whoops, not to aggravate, but to excuse and mitigate even the worst cause as this one, when brother plots against the life of his brother. Rebecca alone takes it on to herself. Now, um, Shoulders it remedies it in such a manner that both the plan and the wicked attempt are thwarted and isaac who is old gray and venerable is not saddened if isaac had found out he could have been consumed and killed by sadness of heart for it is likely as we have pointed out above on the basis of the account that during so many years he endured numerous indignities from his son who ruled with such arrogance And if this final misfortune had been added, he would have wasted away because of the distress and grief of his heart. Now, this language of putting the best construction on things also comes to us from Luther's uh, instruction on the Eighth Commandment. Shall not bear false witness or we shall not give false testimony against our neighbor. And in that place, Luther says, the same thing, that we don't lie, slander, betray our neighbor, but we put the best construction on everything. And I, I would come in to you all to, to read Luther on the Eighth Commandment from the large catechism. It's really, um, it's really hard. It has to do with the idea that, okay, so number one, we're truth tellers. Christians are truth tellers. And we are invested in the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. We are not liars or deceivers or betrayers in any way. Uh, And yet that, that dedication to the truth, which the Eighth Commandment gives us, also sets us to protect our neighbor's reputation.
1: And so... Part of keeping the Eighth Commandment is is
0: letting well putting the best construction on everything, trying to understand everything that everybody is doing, but letting private things be private, not exposing things
1: to um, to public uh, ex-
0: scrutiny. This is very tricky. Because sometimes things need to be exposed, and we got to know the difference. And we also need to know the difference between private and public. Like, for example, if someone is a public teacher, if someone is putting teaching on the internet or publishing it in a book or something like this, then they are also open to public scrutiny. And a pu- for example, public false teaching should be addressed publicly. It's not fair for, like, say I teach some false doctrine on Sunday or on the worldwide Bible class. And then someone publishes an article about the errors of Pastor Wolfmuller, and I say, no, no, you have to come to me first. No, they don't. I didn't go to them first to get permission. They don't have to come to me first to get permission. But if something happens in private, like if you hear me saying something uh, terrible about someone in private, then the best thing to do is to come privately and rebuke the private sin privately. And if that doesn't work, then the escalation happens slowly. This is Matthew 18. First you bring one or two others, and then it goes into the public conversation of the church. So we want to be very slow to bring our neighbor's sin into public light. Now, our temptation is the opposite. We we always we want to cover our own sin, but we want to expose our enemy's sins, or the people that we don't like, or the sin that committed against us. And so, the eighth commandment sets us to try to protect our neighbor. Um, and there's a there's a a wisdom that's there because again, it's it's not that we are deceptive or not dedicated to the truth, but that we recognize that. Well, remember, were we talking about this last week? Remember the story from Dr. Kleinig? Dr. Kleinig is a, a theology professor and pastor down in Australia. He wrote a number of great books Hebrews commentary, Leviticus commentary, but Grace Upon Grace, uh, the Lutheran spirituality book. But remember, Dr. Kleinig said that the devil loves to use our being right. So the devil loves to take us being right about something and use it to hurt someone. And th- that's not why that's not why we are lovers of truth. We are not lovers of truth for truth's sake as an abstraction. But we are lovers of truth for Christ's sake and for the neighbor's sake. So our dedication to truth is to serve God and to serve the neighbor. Now where this really gets hard is when my neighbor's private sin is hurting another neighbor like if i know of abuse that's happening and the secrecy of that sin
1: is protecting the abuser
0: but it's hurting the one who's being abused and in that case i want to escalate that as quickly as necessary to address the problem but no higher than necessary So, um,
1: so this is, um,
0: so this is kind of, it's a very, very tricky situation. So Luther's saying, Hey, look, we have this example that we need to study with Rebecca who, who sees the plot is happening here for Esau to kill Isaac. And instead of going to, sorry, for Esau to kill Jacob. And instead of going straight to Isaac and saying, your son's trying to kill your son, she goes to him and says your son needs to not marry one of these ladies around here can we send him off so that isaac sends off jacob problem solved and isaac and um and isaac doesn't have to worry about the rage of esau here's a question from the chat it says is it still considered private to go to the family when you're concerned for the safety of the child or the spouse when you need additional information to know if the person may be in danger, things like substance abuse. This is so hard. I don't know if there's a, um, there's not a simple answer on this, but here's the way to think about it is that the eighth commandment is not the first commandment. So,
1: um, If property
0: or marriage or life is in danger, then we break the Eighth Commandment to keep the Seventh Commandment. But we want to be very careful about that. I mean, when we're in those circumstances where it's like, I'm going to break one of the commandments, which one is it going to be? Very, very, very difficult. So that's a good question for the the pastor to hash out in the local circumstances. Okay, let's keep reading a little bit. Um, I'm back here. Hopefully you guys can see back on, uh, your spouse is your neighbor. Yes. So that, oh, that's an important part too. So like, for example, um, th- this is a great look at you guys again. Uh, people will always come up to, uh, Carrie, my wife and start talking about stuff that they told me. And they assume that I told Carrie and I, I don't tell Carrie for a number of different reasons, but I mean, if sometimes I think if Carrie can be a helpful addition to the conversation, I'll ask, Hey, do you mind if I share this with Carrie? She, I think she'd have some helpful things to say, but most of the time I don't, but people just assume that. So, uh, so if I know of someone's sin, that doesn't mean that Carrie knows of someone's sin. In fact, that's part of it. I want to protect them and their reputation and their good name from from also from Carrie. So I'm not sure if that's the question, but those are thoughts about that. Okay. Um, if she had been a wicked woman, is Rebecca, she could have poured, uh, she would have blown on the fire and would have poured oil and pitch on the flame for that's what perverse natures that are inclined beyond measure to, what's this word, calumniate and to revile or want to do. But the tongue of a righteous man is a tongue of life, for he speaks well of God and uses his tongue to compose dissensions, to mitigate and allay offenses, to buoy up and to strengthen distressed hearts. So how, does the, how do we use our tongues to do all this? a beautiful example is related about Monica, mother of St. Augustine. If at any time quarrels had arisen among the women who were her neighbors, I don't know the story. We're getting this. We're all getting this for the first time together today. Quarrels had arisen among the women who were her neighbors. And she heard many bitter, harsh statements about made on both sides. She did not spread them abroad or carry them from one to the other, but she carefully concealed them. And meanwhile, When she came to one of those who hated one another, she pretended that the other woman had spoken of her in the best and most proper manner. In this way, although the other woman had no knowledge or information about the matter, she would be appeased, with the result that she rid her heart of all offense and grudge. Thus, the tongues of godly people must also be healing, tongues that can cure and likewise mitigate and show mercy, as stated in Ecclesiastes 36. Please help in with calumniate, make false
1: defamatory statements. Thank you.
0: But harsh and abusive tongue often stirs up a huge sea from one little drop and a huge fire from one spark. Therefore, let us shun that vice and follow the example of Rebecca and Monica in order that when we hear the worst, we may say the best and explain in the best way unless it happens that someone's welfare is endangered because of the other person's implacable hatred. So that so you see the, the you you see the limitations on um, the limitations on this. Again, the when someone's life is in danger, when someone's property and, and marriage are in danger, then sin has to be exposed. But otherwise we're trying to we're trying to make things go well. If that's the case, one who's in danger should be warned, another that he may be able to beware the violence or the plot of his adversary. He who reported Esau to his mother, Rebecca, in this murderous quarrel, did what was best. And by that very fact was a healing tongue because he ordered him who, whom the danger was threatening to get out of the way. Consequently, plots and murders should not be kept secret, but should be revealed. This messenger who reported Jacob's danger from his brother should not have said, "Esau is well satisfied; he has nothing evil in mind; he loves his brother." But the devil in the other court, who urged and inflamed his prince to commit murder, had to be accused and revealed. For if he had not given the information, he would have aided the murder, because he brought the message. He prevented the murder. So this is, here's the point: is that, um, well, well, let's keep going a little bit more. But
1: if if you know something that's a secret. You are called to a stewardship of that.
0: If you know things that other people do not know, which is what happens in our lives together I mean, this is, this is a bit, just a big part of, of, of living in this world, it's that I know things about people that other people don't know. and the question is, what do you do with that information? How do you treat it? Do you militarize it for their destruction? Or do you cover it over for their good?
1: It's very, very, very difficult.
0: Okay, Luther's got a couple more paragraphs. This is moral teaching here. This is moral instruction, which is transmitted here with profit. For we see the example that both the plot and the murderer are thwarted. And everything is kept secret with amazing cleverness. Lest the murderous threats of Esau be reported to his aged father. And Rebecca surely gives a very good reason, for Jacob has already been appointed heir. The blessing has been bestowed on him. The entire church has been entrusted to him. Now a staff uh, to lean on must still be put into his hand, she said to Isaac. That is, he should have with him a wife as a companion and a help. This is very proper statement, not only in regard to what is useful and proper, but also in regard to what is necessary. For if he is destined to enjoy the blessing, he must have a wife. Up to this time, he's lived without a wife since he was cast aside and didn't count. Now Esau has been cast aside. Consequently, a wife must be given to Jacob, who has obtained the blessing, and later later will assume the entire rule. With this rhetoric, she persuades Isaac to send their son away, for it's an argument based on necessity, an argument which surpasses all arguments with regard to what is useful and honorable. Uh, This has to do with rhetorical devices, so um, what is necessary versus what is useful, and versus what is good. And and the highest argument is the argument of necessity. This must be done. Thus in Galius, we find the proper statement of Metellus that if we want to have citizens, we must also have wives, for marriages must be preserved for the sake of descendants. That's of necessity. Marriage is of necessity. This is an interesting thing that our own culture has forgotten, the necessity of marriage. (laughs) Oh, let's keep going. Matt says, when a private sin is brought to a brother, they are called to private confession. What about a sin made public? Is public confession required over the sinner or just a private one? There's a place in the church for public confession and absolution for an individual. So, uh, for example, if I commit a public sin of, say I teach a false doctrine from the sermon, here's an easy one. Say I preach some heretical thing it's not enough for me to go to private confession and receive absolution for that sin. I should also, um, apologize, confess that sin. And if possible in the place and to the people that I committed it against. So, and if there's an absolution there or restoration, then that should also happen in the same place. So we also, we want to confess our sins to God but we also want to confess our sins to who we sinned against. And if we sinned against the world, the public, then we confess also uh, publicly then. So I think that's right. Um, I've seen this in churches where someone, for example, Paul talks about this in Corinthians, First Corinthians, excommunicate the guy. And then in 2 Corinthians, he says, restore. So if you look in the in the pastoral companion books, On the page for excommunication, the very next page is for public restoration. So to bring in the one who was removed is part of the life of the church publicly. Good question. Okay.
1: But why do you not
0: betroth, back to to the argument that Rebecca is making with Isaac, but why do you not betroth one of the Canaanite maidens to him? That would be what supposedly Isaac would say. They do not please me, she says. And the rhetoric she employs is different from that which is useful and proper. I do not want him to marry a woman like those two daughters-in-law of ours. You've seen, my dear Isaac, how much we have suffered during these 30 years from the wives of Esau. They've trodden me underfoot. They've despised you. They've behaved with the utmost arrogance. Yes, in an exceedingly tyrannical manner. If you want me to be safe... Do not let him marry a heathen woman from the daughters of this land or from the Canaanites, for they hate us, since they hear that we have the promise of this land. This they cannot bear. Therefore, they want to drive us out by force and injustices of every kind. Moreover, scripture does not expressly mention her brother Laban to whom she was about to send her son. Perhaps Isaac asked, Whence then shall we choose a maiden for him? And she replied, let him go to my brother Laban. To this advice, the aged Isaac gave his assent, and he entrusted everything to her judgment. For Rebecca now governs the house, but with great difficulty and danger, since matters are so confused and in such a bad state. Accordingly, after this consultation, Jacob is sent into exile. He who has been blessed and appointed as the heir is cast out of the house and flees from his enraged, his enraged brother. A beautiful blessing indeed, and certainly an excellent beginning of the promises he holds. Or I've been appointed heir, he could have thought, and I'm being cast out? And he who has been cast out stays and gains possession of everything in the house? How does this agree with a promise with such a rich blessing? (laughs) Do do, do you see this? What's the first thing that happens after Jacob is blessed is he has to, to flee. you think, what kind of blessing is that? But this is how it works. I and mean, this is how God does things. This is, the, the, when, you, we, when we're reading the Old Testament, we're watching God seemingly fight against his own promises. I mean, you, when the Lord says, okay, take Isaac, your son, the one that you love, and murder him. He said, the one he's the one that the promise belongs to. He's the one that the seed is going to come through. He's the one who's. So it looks like God is fighting against his own promises.
1: How different is this from our lives? Not at all.
0: This then is one of the wonderful examples of the divine government by which God shows that he requires confidence in his word and promises even if the opposite of what is contained in the promise happens. Why? Why does the Lord do it this way? It's an amazing thing to see, actually. He does it so that in order that we may accustom ourselves to trust in God in all things that are absent and are placed far out of our sight.
1: Every prayer, remember, begins as an unanswered prayer. The Christian life is a life of
0: waiting. This is how the Lord works. For Jacob has the promised blessing, but he has it in accordance with the faith, which is a matter of things that are hoped for, not the things that are visible. Confer Hebrews 11, 1, which says just those exact words. Thus, I believe that God who promises, loves me, has regard for me, cares for me. He will hear me. And this I regard as something present and at hand, although it's not visible. Therefore, Jacob lives in
1: faith alone. Got it? You got the (laughs) punchline? He's wretchedly cast
0: out, lonely and destitute, nothing in his hand but a staff and a morsel of bread in a little sack. This is the beginning of the blessing. (laughs) amazing I mean he's even leaving he's leaving his house and
1: he he's got nothing
0: for what's begun through faith is not yet in one's possession but is hoped for thus God has promised us eternal life he is given absolution and baptism This grace I have at hand through Christ, but I await eternal life, which is promised in the word. Those who live by this word are saintly and blessed, but the godless live only by bread, not by the word. Therefore, they do not believe and do not wait for eternal life. Jacob waited 77 years for the blessing that was to come. Now, after he obtained it, he's forced to go into exile and begin his rule and priesthood with a very great cross, with a very great calamity, with extreme poverty. He is forced to be cut off from his very dear parents. And the parents are cut off from their dearly beloved son for such a long time. If a person looks at and hears this only in passing, he considers it unimportant and easy but one learns by experience how difficult and full of trials it is to leave parents a blessing and an inheritance and to flee to a place of wretchedness and poverty. This is the wonderful government of God. (laughs) That phrase, the government of God. We need to, we need to, we need to get that back. We, we, um, um, the calvinists always are talking about the 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 sovereignty of god or the providence of god but here luther uses for that idea the government of god he had it up here already um yeah here the government by which god shows that he requires confidence this is the way the lord governs us it is a government that consists in faith this is written as an example for us, in order that we may learn to depend on the invisible God and to be satisfied with the fact that, at all events, we have the comprehensible Word of this invisible and incomprehensible God. Oh, this is glorious. Now, now, do you see? Here's an amazing thing for us to think about. Do you see how much the? Do you see how much just on a? kind of basic level here how the theology of luther with law and gospel and the theology of cross and suffering is governing the way that he reads these texts and it's helping him to see things that are hard for us to see at least they're hard for me to see like here the blessing 77 years old you got nothing and then you get the blessing at last the thing that you were supposed to get all along and then you have even nothinger
1: incredible
0: i'm looking here the, lois says this is a very picture of faith trust in god when we can't see or reason that's right and then matt the devil uses this visible seemingly contrary evidence to gain a foothold and whisper in our ear did god really say that's right that's why we have to read these texts and study them right
1: that's
0: great let us order our lives in such a way that we have nothing from our invisible creator but the word and sacraments. You guys see that? Trying to highlight it. Likewise, parents and magistrates through whom this life is governed in accordance with the word, and let us wait for the promise itself in hope and long-suffering, for God will not lie, nor will he deceive us. This is, I was reading one time a little essay. It was really nice. It was talking about the difference between Luther and Calvin. And the guy summarized Luther's theology this way God doesn't lie. We believe that when he speaks, he tells the truth. That's kind of nice. Here it is God doesn't lie. But look at this. Uh, we have nothing, we have nothing from our invisible creator but the word and sacraments. This is the this is really the sola scriptura, and this is should remind us of
1: um, P. Come on, P.
0: T. U. Uh, R. This should remind us of uh, Luther in Small Called Articles, three, eight. where Luther says that we have nothing from God does not want to deal with us by any other way than by his word and sacrament. This is how the Lord deals with us. So we have the word, we have the sacrament, we have the promise, and we're waiting. Nor will he lie, nor will he deceive us to be sure the flesh believes with difficulty for it's accustomed to things that are at hand and is moved by things it feels and sees but the flesh must be crucified and mortified. It must be withdrawn from, from the things perceived by the senses and must learn in order that it may be able to live and act in accordance with the things that are invisible and are not perceived by the senses. This is the mortification of the perception of the flesh, which simply wants to to sleep smugly, on both ears in matters that are at hand and visible what's that mean a terence reference therefore when it is felt the opposite it's vexed and sorrowful now we normally talk about the mortification this is interesting i got to think about this we normally talk about the mortification of the flesh which means that you know our flesh has uh, how do we sing in the, in the hymn Our flesh has not those pure desires the spirit of the law requires. So we want to steal. We want to be lazy. We want to gossip. We want to look with lust. We want to be angry. We want to hurt our neighbor to our benefit. We want to rebel against our parents. We want to chase after idols. Our flesh just It has this concupiscence, this desires to do these wrong things. So normally when we talk about the mortification of the flesh, we're talking about the the fighting against those sinful desires. But here Luther says we have to mortify the perception of the flesh. So it's not just what the flesh wants, but it's also what our flesh sees. So that the spirit is opening in us, What what Paul calls in his prayer to the that he reports to the Ephesians, the eyes of your heart. That the eyes of your heart would be opened, so that we see things, not according to ourselves, but according to God and His Word.
1: So we're trying to, part of our putting to death the flesh is putting to death the sinful perceptions of our flesh. That is really
0: something. I'm learning with you guys, by the way, because I had not seen that particular phrase anywhere in Luther or anyone. So so you can imagine I got to meditate on this all week. Therefore, let the example set before us. We'll do another paragraph here. Therefore let this example set before men's eyes to show how Jacob is appointed king and priest, how he's invested with his rule and priesthood for such is the wretched pomp and ritual connected with anointing and investing this king. He's not clothed with a royal robe. He's not adorned with a fillet or a royal crown or a scepter. No scepters put in his hand, but he's equipped with a bag and a staff and driven into exile. The blessing is left to his brother Esau who did not, by any means pertain to whom to whom it did not by any means pertain but finally after jacob has been mortified through faith in the invisible god the visible blessing follows the seed of jacob takes possession of the land and christ is born from that seed christ the eternal king and priest whose kingdom and priesthood is contained in this blessing so david etc etc that's probably a good spot to pause for now. So the, you see here J- Jacob is made king and instead of getting a staff, he gets a walking stick and instead of getting a crown, he gets a hoodie and off he goes to exile. And that's how the Lord makes him king. That's God's government. Got it? Okay, let's let me uh let me say a quick prayer and then I'll we can jump on and talk a little bit uh more but let's close down the recording oh lord we thank you that you govern this world in such a way that faith is extolled and that we walk by faith and not by sight and we pray that by your spirit you would help us to to mortify the perceptions of our own sinful flesh that we might see clearly your your blessings which you promise us through christ our lord amen